Hey, welcome to the show. I don't know if you know this historical, philosophical anecdote. Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher, goes out on a date. When he's out on the date, his date wants an expensive bottle of wine from the wine list. He says, I think not, and poof, he disappears. Welcome to Critical Thinking for Everyone! Hello, everybody. Welcome to our humble show. Humble show. It's a humble show put out by humble people with humble ideas. <laughs> I mean, we are just doing our best to bring you things that really, if we're right, you already have. And could change your life. But you already have them. <laughs> I mean, we're so redundant. There are very few things more humble than bringing it, even when you know mm. that they already possess it. Mm. Do you think? Well, I think the show is about helping people level up. Level up. So, like, they've yeah. got something. Yeah. Okay, and we're going, what you need to do is just make a little better showing. Is that what we're yeah. trying to do? Are we yeah. challenging them? Um, I think we're inviting them in, and then we're challenging Okay, well, welcome to the show. My name's Brian Barnes. And my name is Patty Payette. And you should consider yourself invited to spend the next 58 minutes-ish uh, with us on Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP, Louisville, Kentucky. Critical thinking for everyone. That's right. Here this we are. is our show where we roll around in a big bucket of critical thinking stuff mm. and we Sounds messy. share it with you sometimes it is we share it with you can we do that in covid and yeah i know we invite you in to roll around with us and we okay. hope you take some good juicy ideas out of it wow okay That's a, as we've never used that particular image I okay think. well i think that um you are in a position friends to comment on your point of view regarding patty's solicitousness when it comes to getting you into the critical thinking fold we certainly want everybody i mean any because it's all thinkers and so whatever it takes to get you here if it's big gobs of critical thinking goo what are you you're rolling around in it well, I was just thinking, you know, sometimes the way we talk about ideas, we're kind of like rolling around and we're sort of like mm. rubbing them over us and talking about them and seeing how they fit. So that's interesting, right? Because I think a lot of times when we talk about our thinking or when we start thinking about our thinking or if I think about my thinking, a lot of times what we come up with are structures. Like if we know anything about thinking at all, if we've ever thought about thinking at all, we have these like, it's like a scaffolding kind of, or it's kind of organized, you know, not necessarily um, in a temporal way, although sometimes it's, you know, this leads to that kind of thing. But, but often I can, um, if I'm a little bit skilled, I can at least point to the parts of thinking that I'm familiar with, right? And I can talk about how this or that type of thinking is uh, present or maybe is not present in, uh, in my critical thinking, self-reflective stuff, right? And that is so much more organized than rolling around in it. I mean, it's just... It's just an interesting dichotomy. Mm, right. 
Right. Yeah, that is interesting. And you and I have, as this show has shown, we often have different approaches. Well, but we both have this approach. Like, we both have a lot of structure. Yeah, we when do. When it comes to critical thinking. When I say so. rolling around, we do have structure. I mm. like the idea of rolling around because we bring ideas and concepts and things from the headlines. And we, I like to say roll around in them as a way of saying we, we sort of play with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we definitely have structure, but we, we, we try to have fun with I and think see where do. it goes. Fun, though, once again. Oh, my goodness. I ask my students about critical thinking um, in uh, university classes, and they say things like, oh, yeah, that was some stuff we were forced to do in high school. Like, yeah. that's just really boring. boring, laborious. Yeah, I know. And that's, you know, that's kind of the challenge of this show. The mission of the show is to take something that sounds laborious and boring and make it dynamic and relevant and fun. And fun. Okay. okay. Well, well, we're doing our best. Uh, we hope that at least that um, the metaphors that we've started with here have attracted your attention and these comparisons, and you're thinking, maybe I didn't know as much about critical thinking as I thought I did if these folks are saying all of this stuff is is part of it. Or you, maybe you're thinking, that's kind of a high bar. Let's see if they can even get close to clearing that. Oh, yeah, fun. Yeah, in the next 50 yeah, fun, minutes. Yeah, fun would be tough as a bar, but I don't know. I mean, it's okay for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, hard to know. Well, today's topic, we got we got a, a variety of topics. Well, it's interesting, right? What we try to do on this show a lot of times is we try to bring different topics that are um, maybe in the news or that are in people's thinking about how thinking should occur. Mm. Yeah. And we like to do it in real time and show you our thinking as we are doing it out loud yeah, with yeah, yeah. each other, yeah. playing off each other, challenging each other. Yep, yep, yep. And this particular article, I thought you would have some very interesting observations to share. Okay, That's well, why I brought it. Well, let's observe. What kinds of things do you have in mind? Okay, well, this article is the intersection of several topics, including kittens, consciousness, and Descartes. <laughs> Kittens, consciousness, yes. and Descartes. Yes. That's quite a combo. Isn't it? I yeah. thought it would ring your chimes. All right. Well, let's give it a shot. So my first first comment yeah. uh, about this article, it's a new article from the New York Times by Farhad Manju. Manju. Okay. I'm saying that right. M-A-N-G-J-O-O. Farhad was inspired by this article by the kittens that his family adopted during COVID. Okay. Okay. Cool. Named Leo and Luna. That's the name of his cats. All right. And, and this is what he started by asking himself. When my new kittens look at me, what do they see? Mm. As their provider of food and shelter, do they regard me as a parent? Mm. Or with any towering relative size, or my towering relative size, my powers over light and dark, and my apparently infinite supply of cardboard boxes, am I more like a deity to them? (laughs) And then he says, oh, but then I catch myself. I'm projecting my own human intuition onto my felines, right? We all, we all, I'm just, it's just me now. We all, I think, tend to do that with our pets, right? Our pets become like our family members, right? So he's saying, while some behavioral studies suggest cats respond to human social cues and may even like interacting with people, Obviously, there's a lot of research that shows there's wide variation in individual 
cat attitudes. Catitudes, also known as catitudes. Is that right? Catitudes? I'm just I'm just throwing that in. I think that's probably true. I think it's probably known as that. Right. So, and they're far less cooperative, he notes, than dogs. Okay. Right? All right. They're far less people, fewer, they're not really into people pleasing the way dogs are. Oh, sure. So they don't, they don't um, do as much uh, sort of learning of behaviors uh, in order to maybe cooperate and, and communicate with the right. humans. And they don't engage in a lot of um, sort of habitual behaviors often like like being walked or something like that like there's there are behaviors that go along with that for our dogs right right yeah. and mm-hmm. i notice my dog does this yeah stares at me i'll just be minding my own business across the room staring at me yeah. and i'm think what's going on is he's like trying to figure out like what am i doing what's next is he involved like he's watching me mm. and and while cats, I, because I, I've owned a cat, it's been a while, okay. watch you, it's a little more of a detached kind of like, right? It's more detached. Oh, I don't know. I think. Really? I, you I, think I, you it, find them? I, some of them are pretty engaged. Yeah. To be attentive to yeah, you? I think okay. so. I mean, it probably is an illusion, but. Right, yeah, maybe. You know. So he says to himself, Maybe I'm nothing more than a natural resource to exploit, uh, right? Yeah. What the beehive is, is to the honey-loving bear, right? And mm-hmm. he refers to a, a classic onion from the onion, a headline from that sat- satirical yeah. newspaper that says, vacationing woman thinks cats miss her, <laughs> right? This idea that maybe they're, you know, I'm just, I'm there to provide the lap that they want to sleep in or to provide the food that they want. But those things might be really important, too. Yeah. So so these are the questions he's wondering about. Well, hold so, on. Before yeah. we go further with this, yeah. just to point out to people, because people be, might be thinking, my God, like, what did I fall into here? <laughs> when we're talking about critical thinking, one important aspect of this is self-reflection is looking at your own thinking and questioning that thinking and trying to evaluate what we what we locate there and a big piece of that is questioning it's just doing questioning generally not only questioning my own thinking but questioning um, everything about the situation and in some cases we might not know the answers to the questions like that's relatively important to note that we might not actually even be able to figure it out like what's the cat actually thinking per se is it thinking in these ways that we think or is it some other manner or or even like a dog right? yeah well yeah. yeah i mean anything and all these questions but yeah it's just it's for us just to sit and try to think that through we're probably not going to have enough to be 100 percent certain about that but you know critical thinking would say there's still value in locating the limits of our knowledge on any topic, right? And going through the exercise of, of you know, identifying my own, my own assumptions, articulating my own point of view, checking uh, some of my information. I mean, all of that's important for critical thinking. So that's kind of what Farhad is doing in this article, right? He's starting off by saying like, hey, we got these kittens. And I started watching them play, and I started watching them interact with each other and with me, and I started asking myself these questions. Yeah, yeah. Right? So he's kind of modeling that, and he says to, he says to us in the article, he says, 
What I have found magical is the way the kittens help lift my gaze above dreary, immediate circumstance. Mm. Right? We all need that. Mm. There's a lot going on in the world, a lot of it unpleasant. Watching the cats romp about has become a reliable way to escape all that. I find myself jumping from small questions like, does Luna seriously not realize yet that she's attached to her tail? To larger, more abstract and eternal ones. Does Luna even understand that she is? Does she, in the way Descartes conceived it, possess knowledge of a self? Oh, yeah. So what's what's the question he's asking then when he says an eternal one? The, and he refers to Rene Descartes. What, what's, the, what's he ask, asking here? Okay. So Descartes used self-reflective questioning techniques, um, you know, hundreds of years ago in France to, although maybe he did the questioning in the Netherlands, but I digress. Or maybe, <laughs> would it have been Sweden? I think oh maybe. Oh my gosh. It's, boy, it sure is one of the three. I'd have to go back and look. At any rate, um, Descartes used these self-reflective questions to deny or call into question what he thought would be pieces of his reality, of his, of his lived experience that could be other than they appeared. He was looking for certainty, okay. right? And so he was wondering, is it certain if I can come up with a way to question it or discredit it or cause it to appear to be something other than genuine. So, for example, my own perception. Right. There, there have been times when I've been ill, when I've been sort of just between sleeping and waking, when I've been intoxicated, when I've been in... Like an altered state. Very chaotic circumstances where I misperceive reality. Right. And in, and in some of those cases, I also was under the impression that this actually was reality. Like I, right. like I, I, I didn't know something was wrong at the time that I perceived it, right? Whatever that was. And so often we're shown later on to have been wrong about earlier states of understanding. And so Descartes questioned every piece of his understanding, including his own body uh, and its existence, because maybe he was misperceiving some of that. Maybe um, an evil god was playing a trick on him. Uh, maybe the laws of the universe were somehow being manipulated um, so that he misunderstood. Or maybe he was just ignorant. So, so it was essentially he was questioning his own, the nature and validity of his own perceptions. Of everything. 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 In, including, okay. And, and right. if, but, but perceptions were a big part of it. And so yeah. what he came up with was there's one piece of this analysis that he couldn't dismiss as being potentially questionable. Okay. And that piece was the fact that he was doing any questioning at all from his point of view if there if he could perceive that there was questioning going on in this internal dialogue if he could perceive that and if he could if he could experience that then that must mean there's for him it was absolutely uh no way to avoid this conclusion that must mean that there is a thinker 
doing that thinking or there is a question or doing that questioning. I see. And so that for him became the foundation of his analysis, the bedrock, which he used to then go back and demonstrate that the rest of reality also possessed aspects of certainty such that it could be trusted. So that's that self-reflective model, I think, that ends up with asking this fundamental question that leads to the conclusion that since I am a thinker, that must mean that I then exist. And that, hence that quote, famous quote, I think, therefore I am. That's right. Right. Yep, okay. Okay. So now that we have a basic grounding in Descartes' thinking about consciousness and awareness of self, yep. then this is, this is, let's go back to talk about the kittens here. All right. So he says, consider the question of a cat's consciousness. Leo and Luna behave in very ordinary kitteny ways. To them, no hole is too small to explore, no sure. perch too high, etc. Sure. It can often appear as if they are driven mainly by simple, hard-coded instinct and response. If something moves, then pounce, right? To Descartes, this sort of reflexive behavior suggested that animals were automata, hmm. essentially mindless machines that lacked the subjective experience of a conscious self. Automata. Oh, is that how you say that? Yeah, it's the plural. Automata. A, a plural of automaton. automaton. Makes yeah, sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Automata. Essentially mindless machines that lack the subjective. Ex so, what's, so what is he basically saying here then? Descartes is saying about that animals did not have that reflexive like, hmm, am I real? Yeah. Descartes, Why do I do what I do? Yeah. Descartes' conclusions about the differences between human and animal thinking really drove a lot of the learned opinions about thinking in those two groups for centuries um, until really, um, you know, modern science came along with new methods. But a lot of, you know, uh, early modern science or whatever, Renaissance science, what yeah. have you, I mean, that was really dominated by uh, a lot of the kinds of approaches that Descartes took, which were so novel, um, so revolutionary for a lot of for a lot of folks, and a lot of people reacted against them. I'm not saying everybody agreed with them, but that kind of thinking was really instrumental. And so, you know, Descartes, for example, famously did a number of experiments on animals to um, to determine whether you know to the, to determine the extent to which they were like humans in their perceptions and in their um, responses to various well, stimuli. Well, that kind of stuff is still going on, Yeah, right? his, his stuff was super brutal. And um, and for him to have done, anybody can look it up, but for him to have done the kinds of things that he did to animals and to then mischaracterize the animal's responses as somehow mechanistic is just savage and stupid, wow, <laughs> frankly. Wow, what year was this? <laughs> Oh, Descartes was absolutely in the 1600s. Yeah. Well, there is still now, in this day and age, people who are debating this question of... They are. Right? The right. nature of thought and in animals and vis-a-vis -vis human, how we think about human thought and oh, yeah. language, right? There's all, you know... So then he goes on to talk a little bit about the term consciousness. And we have never really talked, we've talked about this on the show a little bit, mm, but I thought mm -hmm. 
I thought this would be good to kind of delve into what he is exploring about this idea about consciousness. Oh, that's cool. And I mean, consciousness, the idea of kind of what is that phenomenon that we're all experiencing behind our faces. Right. Like, what is that? Right. Um, is uh, super common. And it's also just really, really relevant, I think, to everyone who might uh, be listening to the show. I mean, if we don't have an opinion about this, we probably haven't very, spent very much time thinking about it. I mean, I think that opinions arise as you consider your own experience of being a thinker in addition to being a, you know, a meat suit running around. So, <laughs> Right. Even though we might not be using that term, consciousness, you know, we, we might be using it in terms of my my thinking mm. or my thought process or my awareness, right? We might be using other terms. We might be. Um, yeah. We might not be really paying attention to it as a thing to be studied. That's one of the things that makes critical thinking um, in most of the forms that you find it uh, really useful for this kind of an exploration because there is a suggestion that what we should be doing is reflecting upon our thinking. So treating our thinking the same way we would treat our bodies if we had a mirror. So we examine our bodies for whatever reasons, right? I mean, we examine our physical selves with mirrors in order to make certain determinations about things that we want to address, right? Um, in one way or the other. And that can be very positive in addition to being uh, negative, but it is a phenomenon that everyone's familiar with, and what we're advocating here, and certainly what like Descartes and these other thinkers here, I mean, what everyone's advocating when we talk about critical thinking is self-reflective techniques as if I held a mirror up to my thinking and just notice what's there. It's a separate step from saying it's good or saying it's bad. Right. Just notice, just, just get used to looking at it. Right, and that's a really interesting. We've never really used that uh, metaphor before. I'm sure 120 uh, shows ago we I, did. So I, don't I, I don't know. We've never. I, know. I mean, I really like that idea <laughs> that when you look in the mirror and you go, "Oh, that's what I look like." Oh, sure. That, right, and you and you yeah. see yourself differently in the yeah. mirror than yeah, you're yeah. in perception of yourself. Similar with consciousness, with critical thinking. Like if I look at my thinking, I go oh, I thought I was being really objective here, or I right. thought I was being right. um, thorough, but whoa, right. Right. I am not. Right, and I think that everyone really owes it to themselves to give this analogy a thought, what you're suggesting here, because all of us, <laughs> all of us, uh, especially as adults, can remember a time when we have accidentally caught our reflection and went, oh, wow, I need to address whatever right. I just caught in my reflection. And thank goodness I did. That's the important point. It wasn't trivial. Like, right. thank goodness that we didn't go to the thing with that particular thing going on, right? Or, or wow, I, have really, I need to fix my posture, or right? Like, whatever. Whatever. Because, whatever. But the point is, you wouldn't have known had you not accidentally caught your reflection. Right. And what we're really asking, I think one of the, the reasons we think this show is useful, is that we want to know what mechanisms do any of us, do you, the listener, have right now for checking that mental posture, for catching your mental reflection in the mirror such that if you were 
a poor thinker or a weak thinker or an unfair thinker in some area, what mechanisms in your life would put you in a position to accidentally learn that about yourself the same way you might walk past the mirror and go, whoa, my wild hair. <laughs> like when, <laughs> when do you go, whoa, my wild thinking? Like, I can't believe I thought right. that. I am a, I'm just a nut. And you do have kind of wild hair. You and do. a bunch of wild thinking. But and wild hair, like a crazy idea. Well, there you yeah, go, right? Hair, wild hair on every critical, level. Critical thinking branding there. We want to go ahead yeah. and claim that. Yeah, wild hair, critical thinking so for everyone. In, in, so he talks about consciousness is an ambiguous term that refers to an ambiguous concept, the subjective experience of life. Mom, mom, mom. He talks about the philosopher David Chalmers, one of the subject's foremost scholars, describes consciousness as a quote-unquote felt quality. Yeah. Consciousness yeah. is what it feels like yeah. to see the sunset or hear a trumpet call or smell the yeah. rain on a spring morning. And who hasn't thought yeah. to themselves, and this is me talking about the article, who hasn't thought to themselves, wow, that's my view of the sunset, or that's my, that's how I hear the song, but you realize that your taking that into your, con is not into your consciousness or into your thinking, isn't the same for everyone else, mm, mm -hmm. and you, you can't get inside someone else's head. Well, unfortunately, Patty, I mean, in my experience, a lot of people haven't really thought very much about that. And it's the sort of thing where if we're not prompted to do it really? very often, I think, I, think, I think if we do encounter that in some, in some passing moment, a lot of people find it to be a relatively trivial observation. And I just think that... Really? Well, and that's why I like Chalmers' suggestion, which I don't typically like this kind of thing on this show for longtime listeners. Um, you know, here's, here's, what, here's what you've been wondering about. I do appreciate that notion of it being in some ways felt. You know, it's so personal, and it's something that is so difficult to describe because if you haven't felt... If you don't feel it, if you don't notice it in these ways it might not really be easy to talk about it with you, right? I mean, it's sort of like when you have a bunch of insights about what's going on here, and your kids are like, ah, you're just old and square, and you're like, no, it's not that, right? I mean, I really do understand this situation better than you. How do we convey that? Because you and I certainly have been in situations where we've gone, oh, yes, this other person understands the situation better, so I'm not going to worry right. about it, right? right. I, I'm going to actually take their advice, which I, you know, am in a position to get because I think that they probably are, have thought, right. you know, and a lot of times, especially kids and stuff, no offense to any kids in particular, um, a lot of times they're not in a position to appreciate that yet. Likewise, people who are adults who are deeply egotistical or who are deeply invested in their own uh, folkways or sociocentric biases, they're also not going to appreciate, you know, necessarily the same, um, the same kind of uh, self-reflective feeling, maybe, about some of their beliefs because they just don't, again, they just don't have the opportunity or the perceptivity, you well, know? Well, you know, and I think that, I think you're right, and I think that um, one of the things that makes our human experience so, quote unquote, lonely is mm. that 
we are subject to our idiosyncratic experience of the yeah. world and we can't we can't I can't have your experience I can right. only have my experience yeah. right and yeah. so yeah. and I think of some I think of a different uh, an example of like when you go to a film with someone or let's say you go oh, to a yeah. film with two other people right. and think of like especially when you're in a movie theater right? you go in mm. the lights go down mm. you're watching this narrative hold on it this is, has been a long time just give me a second I know right. I know it's been a long time <laughs> you're immersed it's designed to be immersive yeah. so that you forget I'm sitting in a chair right I'm sitting next to two of my friends I'm in this air-conditioned space or sure, whatever sure. and you are it's designed to make uh, you sort of absorbed fully into someone else's experience in the film right, right. so it's designed to do that right so the movie ends right you have whatever felt experience about it that you have or multiple different reactions to it you're walking out of the theater and you turn to the other person and you go wow that was heart-wrenching and the other person says that was stupid right <laughs> and so it's those moments yeah, when yeah. you the the the, uh, the individual nature of consciousness and this you know you sat there you watched the same movie in real time together in the same space yeah. and yet your consciousness right process things completely differently that fascinates me yeah, well, I mean, I find it fascinating as well. There's no question at all. Um, and I, I like the way that you put that because it makes a distinction between that feltness. Thank you. It makes a difference between that feltness on the one hand and this, uh, the intellectual experience of it of, on another. Because we can both intellectually appreciate something to exactly the same degree, right? We, right. Can, we, can, we can both go, oh, yes, we can agree on all the details of the, the thing we saw in the movie. Right. Right. And it's just that one of us, for reasons that may not be intellectual, will maybe be impressed by it while another of us won't, right? And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking a lot about action scenes, for example, in movies. Like yeah. a lot of, when I went to movies with my martial arts friends, yeah. there's inevitably a lot of analysis that goes on about action scenes and fight scenes afterward. Military people, there's a lot of yeah. this analysis that goes on, which I think is, um, you know, it, fine from an intellectual point of view. It's just that for a lot of people the movie to what extent or to one extent or another is able to convey the sort of lived experience of an event maybe in ways that that seem more intuitive that seem more felt that seem more um maybe in some ways irrational but hmm. nonetheless important right right i mean i'm th i mean and, and and you can get that you can those are the things that make like the really like the fight scenes everybody really gets into and they pick sides and they and they really care about the outcomes and they really found them find themselves drawn into the believability of what of what's happening right. i would say the same thing happens in like a romance right if what's supposed to go on in this romantic film is you're supposed to believe that these people are in love i would say that that's I don't know. I mean, 
for people who've had those feelings, maybe some of this is more believable than others, right? Like we can yeah. all we can all talk about it intellectually, but there's more than that there. Right, absolutely, right. Because we all have different life contexts that we're bringing, right. that have a lens that we're filtering the film through. And yeah, absolutely. Or even like I think in my book club where we're all sitting around and we're like, oh, I loved it or oh, I didn't like it. Or, right, 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 right. And mm -hmm. we're all talking about it. So hmm. um, there's a couple other concepts in here I thought were really interesting. Chalmers, they talk about this, uh, David Chalmers, and by the way, is, he's a, is he a contemporary philosopher? Yes. David, let me skip down here. Okay. Chalmers calls the quote-unquote hard problem of consciousness the mystery over why subjective experience arises out of biological processes, like why when light of a specific wavelength hits your eyeballs, do you experience the feeling of seeing a shade of vivid red? And so then Chalmers says, why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that it should, and yet it does. I don't really understand his question here. <laughs> By the way, I just looked him up while you were reading, so I yes. don't understand his question either. Okay. Um, he is definitely a contemporary philosopher. Oh, so, uh, okay, let me read this question. Just, okay, okay? Go, go hit the question. I don't really understand it. All right. All right. So he's talking about a hard problem of consciousness, yep, yep, yep. the mystery over why subjective experience arises out of biological processes. Yep. And then he says, like, why, when light of a specific wavelength hits your eyeballs, you experience the feeling of seeing a shade of vivid red. Yeah. And then the question is, why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that it should, and yet it does. Oh yeah, because what is that? What? I don't understand the question. What's he asking? Because if if we just take the the material aspect of experience, yeah. right? So what I do is I I come around the corner and I see, you know, a red sign, and it gives me information like a stop sign or right. something, right? Um, I can have a lot of experiences about that stop sign that are internal and a lot of feelings and a lot of responses to it that aren't merely a function of me having perceived it as a red sign. Okay. Like I can, I can, it can mean much more to me. Okay. Um, it, perhaps it could even mean less. Like, it could mean okay. a lot. Like could you could have an emotional response to for it. For example, like, whatever. Okay. And the question is, why should that occur? Like, why oh. should it occur? Like, I look at all these things around us here in this room, and I say, oh, you know, these are different things. But if the things have specific meanings, then, of course, they're not just a clock. They're not just a picture. They're not just a fan. They they are. Uh, they have a certain history. They have, um, you know, their own. They... Um, they're of a certain quality, right? That goes along with the experience of the people that have used them. And that's more than just... A, like, oh, there's a flag. An objective... Right, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, even if you flag. just... Rec it's an American flag, but it's like, oh, man, some people are going to fight for that flag, right? Just because it's there, right? Whereas other people are going to have very little interest in any kind of strong response about So that. his question really then is about sort of the nature and intricacies of human consciousness versus oh, yeah. something like human perception where it's sort of like, oh, there's a, right, I see red because it's the biological nature of I see the color red. Well, a lot so of that I, work, at least from a philosophical point of view, was really done, you know, around the Enlightenment. I mean, that's where a lot of this stuff was really codified. And then 
modern science, contemporary science, took it and, and quantified it and, and, you know, made it a lot more precise and continues to study it. But a lot of these very basic mapping of the human experience, at least of everyday things, I mean, a lot of that is, I think, quite well accepted outside of, you know, outside of a few, um, you know, strange pieces like, um, you know, experiences of deja vu or something like that. Well, this author says that really Descartes' views are now very outmoded, according to him. He says that most of modern philosophical scholarship has sort of overturn Descartes' view. Oh, I'm not saying that it's Descartes' view that we're holding on to. I'm simply saying coming out of the period that really kind of began with Descartes and the modern tradition that began with him and also in reaction to him. I mean, Descartes is a rationalist philosopher, and I think that the people who really did a lot of the work that I'm talking about um, are... Uh, from a different school, empiricist philosophers, and and they. So what led would they the way. say to Descartes, though? What well, would they'd they say? say they'd say that you know, if it's not. If he so- says, "I think, therefore I am," what would they say? Well, what gee, what would they say? What did they say? I mean, I think that um, I think that I probably can't answer that with a lot of specificity <laughs> right now. What did they all say? Um, I do think that the the tradition, if you will, like the tradition, the tradition is that for. The problem would be, if you want, um, for an empiricist philosopher, that Descartes thought his way to all of this. He literally sat in a chair without using anything other than the tools of his Ah. mind to get to these realities, which he would say are the core truths of everything. Got it. And the empiricist philosophers want to say, if you don't have experience... Um, to talk about the realities of things, then that's really just conjecture. And I think more than, um, you know, sort of that particular conclusion that Descartes made, (laughs) anybody should feel free to reach out and spank me (laughs) on critical thinking for everyone on Facebook. For sure, this is not my area of philosophy, but um, I hope that's pretty clear. But uh, for, I, I, I think that the real argument from the empiricist side would be with the method and the assumption that you could get to truths about reality right. but, um, but in this method. But for the method. 16th century, that was pretty mm, oh, out there, Oh, it was right? super, yeah. right? Because what you have with Descartes is a challenging of the idea that the way that we know truths is by listening to authority. Ah, see, okay. So he's providing right. methods. He says, look, you can think things through in these ways. And all of his, I mean, his two major works that people look at, the Discourse on Method and then the later and more famous Meditations on First Philosophy, which is what um, that I think Therefore I Am business yeah. really comes from. Um, those, I think, uh, you know, they provide a lot of method. Of course, philosoph- or, um, Descartes was well known in his own right as a uh, a mathematician, right? He was, he's the, the father of analytic geometry. No, I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Well, I did not you, know I, that. I, then I bet your analytic geometry is weak. What? I bet. You know what? It is. You, you got me. You pegged me. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of us have that me. problem. <laughs> you got yeah. me on that. Yeah. Okay, so then here's a question, though. All right. According to this article, in 2000, let's go back to kittens for a second. In 2012, oh, wow. after reviewing research on how animals think, a group of neuroscientists and others who study cognition 
put out a document declaring animals to be conscious. They wrote that the weight, quote, quote, yeah. weight of evidence indicates that humans are not unique in possessing the neurological substrates that generate consciousness, consciousness, yeah, yeah. which they said could likely be found in non-human animals, including mammals, birds, and many other creatures, including octopuses. I thought it was octopi. Well, it used to be octopi. I think they are uh, more inclusive in their plurals now. Oh, maybe. Okay. Mm. It is now only possible then that my is not it is not only possible then that my kittens feel the subjective experience of being served chicken slop several times a day uh. it might be likely that they feel something <sighs> you know i mean i think that in the 1960s there was this philosopher he's still around his name's peter singer yeah and peter singer you know did a lot of philosophy and partnered with a lot of neuroscientists and behavioral scientists around this question of animal consciousness and animal um, thinking processes and capabilities and stuff like that. And, you know, it's very clear based on that research and a lot of stuff that came out of that, a lot of stuff that came out of that, which is to say the modern animal rights movement worldwide really, I think, started with Singer and Animal Liberation, um, which was his book. I, th I think that there is a recognition among those who study such things that animal, non-human animals have a very rich inner life of whatever variety that is. And, and, and that for us to trivialize that in most cases is an error. And so then the implications, as this article points out, for things like yeah. eating meat being a meat eater, yeah. or I mean, you, you've been a vegetarian for decades, and yeah. is part of that a ethical stance about how you, you see the consciousness of other non-human living beings? Absolutely. Uh, that's why I became a vegetarian, actually. Actually, I, I became a vegetarian the first time I did it because I'd been curious about it. When I got off to college, no one could control what I ate. <laughs> so, so you're like, I'm going to be a vegetarian. I tried it. Yeah, I tried it. I, I was very interested yeah. in it. I hadn't read very much about it, but I was super interested in, in just the idea of changing the way that I ate um, in that way. And I can't really even account for all of the influences then, but it didn't last very long, and I didn't find it to be... I wasn't. I wasn't very conscious of what good nutrition would be like or kind of um, I found myself really craving meat a lot I didn't have a lot of motivation um, really other than just the idea of doing it um, but then I after graduate school I was teaching uh, a class in ethics and they said one of the things we need for you to teach is this section on animal ethics oh really I yeah. didn't know this about your history and yeah okay yeah this was a long long wow. time ago this was right out of graduate yeah. school and i was like whatever <laughs> do you have a book you know like i can read <laughs> you were it. like I can sure read it. yeah if, if we got a book we're set <laughs> and they did have a book and so um and so i read it and um i i was absolutely the whole time i was going through it just nodding my head going yep 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 i mean just the whole thing um, completely converted my thinking to believing that, um, in particular, using non-human animals in our culture the ways in the ways that we do. I mean, I'm right. I'm talking about 
this very broad but also very specific kind of um, action on humans' part, the systemic, industrialized... Food um, production... The system? Yeah, the the system uh, the system that uses animals not only oh. for food but also for entertainment and for um, uh, scientific experimentation and Oof. for clothing um, for um, cosmetics. I, I I hear what you're saying. Okay, all of that I I determined was completely unjustifiable, and I could not bring myself to to be involved in that anymore. Wow. It didn't last very long because shortly thereafter I went in, I went into the army and I was like, "Hey, do you guys have any vegan boots?" And they're like, "Move on." <laughs> what? And do some push-ups vegan, when you get over there. Vegan vegan boots. boots. And th- now they All might leather belt strips Now sergeant? listen, this was this was decades ago. Now, you know, veganism is a thing and They much have vegan more... MREs. I used to have See? to trade around to just get the vegetarian stuff. I, I was a vegetarian oh all the way through my service, even when I was Wow, that takes and all some that serious commitment on your I was part. deeply bored with food a lot, but I did wow. I did feel self righteous about it. Um, oh, I'm wow. sure. I'm sure at the time I did. But anyway, I did do that and um, uh, I think that uh, yeah, for me it was that it was an intellectual commitment that eventually became broader and deeper, but it was that one thing which is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, 98% of it. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, so, so, I, so I couldn't do anything about my clothing, but, but I, I, try and conti- I try then and continue wow. to try hard with the other stuff. So what um, Farhad, you know, part of his argument here is, you know, where he's taking us, he starts with his new kittens and watching them play, and he takes this around to this idea that he says consciousness matters because it confers ethical and moral status. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, it does. So, yeah. right, how we then, assumptions that we make about animals then has, what he's saying is ethical and moral implications for our behavior yeah. and actions toward the, these animals. Yeah, that's right. If the if the creature is, is conscious in the ways that we tend to right. assume, which is to say that they are self-aware and they're aware of others and they're also aware in some regard like that they're that they're being limited or harmed right those kinds of things if we do that without good reasons and we know that that is what we're doing then that has moral implications for us as free moral agents and then you know where he goes. Makes us bad. I think that's what I think. <laughs> bad is the word we tend to use. Well, in applied ethics. it is fascinating. Compromise and we could sold do, out. I feel like we could weak. do a whole separate show on that topic. <laughs> Sinful. <clears throat> but you know where he goes as he ends the article. This is fascinating. You know where he goes? To Jesus. No. Oh. Consciousness to artificial intelligence. Oh. And he says, far, far right? Away from, far away from Jesus. So he says because. Humanity is presently engaged in a grand effort to transfer many cognitive tasks from humans to machines. We are, because we want to open up the vistas and to get people away from that meaningless work. There's this whole thing that is actually part of that, um, you know, digitizing and mechanizing of the workspace that says we're trying to eliminate the tedious and boring tasks and learn to teach the AI to do those. Right. And so what he points out, 
What he points out, though, is in the future, computers may drive us to work, target missiles and war, and offer guidance on big decisions in business and life. Monitoring these machines is already difficult. Many AI systems are so complex that even the engineers who built them don't completely understand how they operate. Consciousness would only exacerbate this difficulty. I mean, wow, machine consciousness. He says, I know that sounds like an absurd proposition, but consider that we have no real understanding of how consciousness comes about, nor any real way of... Oh, wait a minute. Let's stop on this point. This is an incredible point. We know very little about how conscious... No, he says not very little. No real understanding (laughs) of how consciousness comes about nor any real way of detecting and measuring consciousness in anyone beyond ourselves. Fascinating. That is so fascinating. Where does consciousness come from? It's really difficult. Right? And, and when, when Peter Singer did that seminal work I was talking about with animals, they did... So we already had at that point a few decades of behavioral research, right? Running the animals around in mazes, giving yeah. them tests and that yeah. kind of business, you know, B.F. Skinner stuff. So we had all that stuff for a few decades. But again, you still have the problem of what we refer to in philosophy. I think I've I've laid this one out here before, the closed sphere of interiority. (laughs) I don't even remember you ever mentioning that. Oh, well, I mean, it's an easy one to forget. Closed sphere of interiority, that's, uh, that's the other mind. Right, all other minds, we have this impression of other minds, right? Oh, we I see. We can't get into them. I see. And right. they operate in there, right? We think all right. of the work happens in there and comes outward, but it could be misrepresented, whatever, whatever. And it could just be an error. The point is that um, in order to try to get a little bit more, Singer went to the neuroscientists and he put an, he had them put animals into MRI machines and, and give them tasks. Yeah, and so what what you had, and I think maybe some other people had already done this independently. And what they found was in a lot of cases th- when animals were given tasks, the areas of the brain that light up in humans also light up in the non-human animals. And so then the question was oh. if we can correlate the lighting up with the successful completion of these tasks, can we then extrapolate something like rationality? Wow! Right? Wow! And, and, and then, you know, because because then because right. then it correlates exactly to what humans do. Right. right. And so then the question was, once they once they established that this is all an animal liberation, once they established that, then you start going down and go, okay, where does this stop? Like, right. how low where... do you have to go down the animal chain until you don't have this feature? Wow, fascinating. You know, of all the philosophical concepts we've talked about, Mm. this is actually one of the most interesting to me. I gotta admit, it's that a cool this one. is. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of that show we did on whether or not we're a simulation. How can we know oh, sure. whether we're a simulation yeah, or yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. These epistemological I, questions. Yeah. You, you must dig them. I do. Okay. I really do. That's cool. That's and, cool. You know, it's too late for me to become a philosopher. You're doing it right now. <laughs> Philosophy is one of those <laughs> things that you do by doing, like you develop it by doing. So, it, the, so. the people listening are. If they being, care. If they're engaging mentally with yeah, us. Yeah, that's right. Doing the I mental mean, gymnastics of the show. Oh, yeah, because, this. and this was actually a mistake that I made for a very long time, which was to conflate the doing of philosophy with the academic credentials of philosophy. And then once I got over that one, <laughs> I conflated <laughs> the doing of philosophy with the actual working in philosophy, credentialed or not. Really? Yeah, and it took me a while to get over that one. So I think that those things, 
you could say that those people are philosophers in some Capital use of the P. word. I don't know about that, but philosophers in some use of the word, and, and they do philosophy, right, because they have to understand the material to some degree, even if it's something as sort of um, uh, maybe repetitive as, as formal logic or something. I mean, there right. is a degree of understanding that really is needed in order to be able to put together the mental moves, even if they're at that level of abstraction. I would say that even if all somebody does is teach other people to do that in an organized way year after year, that person qualifies as a philosopher. And even if people are just teaching the history of philosophy, if they're including the ideas and they're unpacking the big ideas, the Descartes, the Plato's, the, you know, whoever out there um, as, as, you know, big thinkers in the class, if they're unpacking those for others and helping others unpack those and get value out of that. I think, you know, and if we're doing it with evidence, et cetera, I think, you know, in rational moves, showing all the intellectual moves, I think all of that's philosophy. So that's kind of what we're doing on the show. It's what we're doing on the show. I mean, I think that the problem is that just like so many other things, you know, the title gets gets relegated to the professional uses, right? But but we also have this phenomenon where we go in any bookstore or we go out there on the internet, we find, you know, the philosophy of everything, right? And so that idea, when you take that use of philosopher, I'm practicing mm. a philosophy of something. If I'm doing anything that's kind of intellectually organized, that might very well qualify, particularly if I'm doing something like rational self-reflection right along with it, developing my own philosophy so, of handball or whatever I'm so doing. so interesting. You know, that really makes philosophy feel a lot more friendly to me. It's super friendly. It, it, makes, me, it makes it feel so friendly to me. It's just okay. that it tears you apart eventually. Well, okay, well, you know, it reminds <laughs> like me good friends when will. people would say, I love writing, but I don't know if I call myself a writer. And you know what people would say is, mm. are you writing? Do you yes. write? Then you're a writer. <laughs> That's right. Right? Do you, do are you, you doing? Because right? so many people don't write. Right. You know, so it's like if you're if you're doing right. it, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'm a yogi. Are you doing yoga? Yes. Right. Well, then, right, right, right. I mean, maybe not. I mean, again, maybe. you don't have to be a teacher, right? But of you could things, be. But, but if a, you're a practitioner, you're a doer, a yeah, doer, or absolutely. maybe practitioner is too strong. Where even if you just dabble, well, I don't know. I mean, I think this is this is an interesting thing. There's a philosopher who is important to our. Um, dear recently de deceased friend um, Osborne Wiggins. Oh um, yeah. Uh, Hannah Arendt, who is uh, an important philosopher, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, in the um, latter part of the 20th century, and and she she talked about she was sort of disenchanted with the idea mm -hmm. of philosophy in the academy as she found it, and she thought that philosophy should be lived, like we should be doing active application of our beliefs out in the world that's where philosophy becomes mm, interesting. really important yeah she thought that that was vital if we would if we wanted to use philosophy to create a better world and also to overcome a lot of uh, social harms for example you know she thought that you know active you know people who are actively engaged in their community on a philosophical level you know would be people who could for example pre create a counter to something like Nazism, right? Um, she thought that was kind of a you know a failure in some ways of of philosophy not being there to make you know to to make the oh. arguments to make the counter arguments to show how this was flawed to you know to to really stand up against um, you know fascism. She thought philosophy should do that, and um, you know doesn't always. Well, maybe we need to talk about her at a future show. Oh, we should. Yeah, she's fascinating. Yeah, very important. Well. Thinker. Are you going to look at your kittens differently? 
Oh, I already look at my kittens differently. <laughs> they're already, I mean, they're already, um, they already are thinking about things, you know, they're discovering things. Um, some of them have already moved on to other homes and I won't see them again. And so, you know, um, you know, my, my household and my team of um, cat, cat connectors are just... Uh, trying Isn't to get that them out awesome? there. That's wonderful. I I love that, and it makes me want to borrow a kitten. <laughs> I don't want to keep it at home, but I might want to borrow it. Well, we have one you can borrow. I'm sure that um, there would be no problem with letting this kitten I go. I could use a little, a little. Yeah. You could you, you could, could use you could use something waking you up by jumping on your face at 5 a.m. <laughs> and then not letting you go back to sleep. No. That'd be I'll, great. Yeah. yeah. You're welcome anytime. You're, ha you're you happy borrow. to loan to loan me that for that <laughs> episode of the day. Okay. I think so. I think All so. Right. Um, so we should also keep in mind it's a great opportunity to put in a plug for Dr. Linda Elder's critical thinking book and an application of critical thinking, um, which is a fair-minded Fran and the community cats, oh, which is about the yes. feeding of feral cats. And uh, there's some critical oh. thinking content in there for young folks, for teenagers. Okay. And, if and anyone younger. wants to learn more, they can go to criticalthinking.org and yep. search under fair-minded Fran if you want to learn more. Absolutely. About critical thinking. There's a lot of good stuff there. There's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of good stuff all over. And that's yeah. um, in some ways because critical thinking is for everyone. Even you. Hey, that is super funky. We hope you enjoyed just letting that music hit you for a minute. Hope you also enjoyed letting the critical thinking hit you. We certainly dug a little more deeply today than we sometimes do, thinking about consciousness, going directly after that lived experience. We hope you're going directly after your lived experience this week, too. And we are absolutely certain that explicit, critical thinking, self-reflective, intellectual work is work that can help you throughout your week and if you want to talk about that or you want to be part of some uh, engagement on that you should reach out to us at critical thinking for everyone also as I mentioned many times forward radio needs you 20 bucks a day time talent or treasure but right now I'm talking treasure I'm talking about 20 bones I'm saying you could slide them under the door in an envelope 20 bucks a day as you go by on your morning walk that would be sweet but you could also go to forwardradio.org you could click that donation button and you could put it on uh, some kind of a digital um, uh, orientation rotation such that you can uh, make sure that money gets there and if you happen to walk a different direction no sweat please give it some thought we do take envelopes under the door we definitely need your support. Thank you for listening to Forward Radio. It's for everyone. <laughs>